Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to Cinelit. Uh, today we take a trip a long time ago in the very near future. Today we are heading into the dystopian futures of 1997 and 2013 with John Carpenter's Escape from New York and Escape from LA. Both films are celebrating milestone birthdays with Escape from New York hitting 40 and uh, Escape from LA hitting 25. So my name is Adam Marsh and as ever I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert Daryl Buxton. How are you Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. I've uh, escaped from whatever I was supposed to be doing this morning to come here and talk about at least one one great film and one uh, maybe not so great, but with the you know with decent elements of its own. So looking forward to chatting about these and the people who who go to the quad a lot and see movies uh, all the time in Derby will know what big fans we are of uh, John Carpenter. There, yeah, well, we're, obviously we we are big fans of John Carpenter, and if you aren't, why not? Um, we 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 love his work here. We've done days of programming dedicated to his films and uh, and the well hasn't run dry <laughs> filming four or five films a day repeatedly uh, and we still manage to show different films I think it's really quite good pulling out a couple from his career particularly these two because they in some ways are a little different strand to Carpenter's career aside from the horror stuff that he's done so it's nice being able to pull that out and when we eventually come I say eventually, we will eventually come to do a podcast on John Carpenter. We can probably um, focus in a little bit more on his horror legacy. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about his action science fiction legacy with Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Um, we both survived, Daryl. Yeah, we, we, we have. Yeah, yeah. As you say, the, the films are set in the, those um, futuristic years of 1997 and 2013. And it is it is it's uh, easy to sort of scoff and laugh when when people do that. Now, you know, you watch Blade Runner or you watch Back to the Future or whatever. The date come off. Every everyone laughs and uh, it's great. There's the, the famous quote from uh, Richard Corliss, the uh, writer for Time magazine for many years, who uh, said uh, nothing ages quite so quickly as yesterday's vision of the future. And um, very true, but uh, I think while you're chuckling at those on-screen dates in Escape from New York, do remember that, uh, or note, that um, 
this is a rather sort of Trumpian world that, that Carpenter's suggesting way back when. He, he made the films in 81 and 96. So we're throwing a lot of dates around here. And um, people that are fans of John Carpenter will know from his other work that um, if you look at a film like They Live, for instance, um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fiercely political filmmaker and a very left-wing filmmaker and uses horror and uses science fiction and uses um, uh, different genres to, to put over political points. And uh, so he's almost predicting, if not directly a sort of Donald Trump-type figure, in, in the presidents that are in these movies. It's very much that sort of world. And um, even, even more sort of pinpointed than that, who, who knew? Um, in the opening minutes of Escape from New York, we get uh, a hijacked aeroplane hurtling towards the World Trade Center. So uh, there's, there's prescience for you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, he had his own president that had been causing trouble and uh, and controversy in America to provide the fertile uh, groundwork for this film with uh, Richard Nixon. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and you just got Reagan into office at the time Escape from New York's being made. So, uh, and Carpenter was no fan of him either. But again, you don't get a Nixon or Ronald Reagan caricature here. You know, the president is played in a very different way, but the the, the, the characteristics are there and the, the political beliefs are there. So, so John Carpenter wanted to make this film as a follow-up to uh, Assault on Precinct 13. And Dark Star around that period, he, he wrote it in '76, I think he said, and he was ready to make it, but he just couldn't, so he had to go and make other films uh, to, I guess, build up enough cred to get the budget he needed to do this film. Um, so it's rooted in that '70s thing. But when you look at it, you think this and another film released in 1979, The Warriors, single-handedly propped up the Italian film industry for about five years. Absolutely. I'd, I'd throw in uh, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, to that as well. So uh, the, the the number of Italian rip-offs that, that sort of steal from those three movies, often sort of amalgamating all three, you know, and, and then a lot of those ended up getting British cinema released too. So you might well have seen films like Bronx Warriors and so on uh, in the cinema very soon after seeing the John Carpenter movie or seeing the Warriors or seeing the, the George Miller film. But yeah, this this is the source, very definitely. I think I think obviously with Escape from New York and indeed Escape from LA, for good or ill, they are rooted in the towns as much as they are rooted in that main character as their appeal. Um, and New York City in this film, even though it was shot mostly in St. Louis, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does live and breathe on its on its a depiction of New York in this movie. In that way, it's very much like uh, the Warriors. I, I got a real Warriors vibe to this when I was watching it. I can see the influences that the Warriors had on John Carpenter as well. Sure, sure. Particularly with the uh, Frank Doubleday character um, coming out and meeting the uh, the SWAT team as they first arrive in New York on, on Manhattan Island. Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to talk more about his performance uh, as as we go. I, th- I think he's he's the he's the core of the film. I think, but there is definitely that 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 sort of feel that the the the, the city is is a character sort of thing, you know. And, and interestingly, what Carpenter does in both films, and this is all part of his satire, you know, because these are very very heavily uh, satirical movies. Manhattan's already an island, but he sort of emphasises that by by walling it off, you know, building a Donald Trump wall around it. And again, 
what what a prediction, you know, and goes a step further in the Escape from L.A., which we'll talk about in depth, by suggesting that L.A. has actually sort of separated itself from mainland America as, as a result of, of sort of natural disaster. And the politicians have taken advantage of that by saying, right, you're not part of the United States anymore. And then guess what? Walling it off. <laughs> Always a wall, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. a bloody wall. Anyway, I think back to New York, he really works hard on making it feel like a real place. I mean, it's not, it's shot in the streets of St. Louis rather than New York because the buildings were very similar to New York. They didn't do it on a soundstage for, for this kind of thing because they wanted to make it feel authentic and real. But the, the, amount, of, the amount of things that they, they managed to do in St. Louis was ridiculous. They managed to convince the council, the, the city council, to switch off the electricity to 10 blocks while they were shooting at night. But I forgot knows how long they were shooting it. It must have been a few four weeks, three, four weeks of shooting. Yeah. Where they just switched the electricity off to a whole town. <laughs> it's a whole 10 block radius. Yeah, and 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 this isn't Steven Spielberg going in there and saying it. You know, it's 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 John Who saying it. You know, Car- Carpenter wasn't wasn't massive at the time. You know, he had his big hit with Halloween. His films had done pretty well, and he was he was just in the early stages of making a name for himself. I'd say, but you know, you, there was the proof that he he had the clout. You know that that uh, that there were people that were paying attention and knew who he was. And um, if he came in with the demand like that, they'd say, oh, sure, yeah. That and it was St. Louis rather than New York. So. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were probably thankful. But, but, we thought of but, it. but then, uh, you know, I mean, filmmakers uh, were, were, were sort of already using Toronto, I think, at that time as a sort of New York surrogate too. So uh, people were sort of penny-pinching and budget-conscious. And, um, uh, you know, on the sort of budgets that Carpenter was working with at that time, New York was was probably out of the question, you know. So uh, managed to do shooting on Liberty Island. Yeah, yeah. Iconic shots, and apparently they were the first camera crew, first crew to go and shoot on the island. Right, right. I call it. I call it Carpenter anyway. Yeah. And so, so they uh, they punctuated all the the St. Louis stuff with the occasional New York's shot and the occasional New York vibe to it. Just to keep us convinced, yeah. yeah but but I, th- I think the one thing that does keep us convinced is naturally it's got nothing to do with the sets. And the one thing that really makes you feel like you're in New York is Ernest Borgnine's Carrie Cabby character. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they, yeah. they, 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 they sell you all the time. Oh, you, he's landed on the World Trade Center, which kind of doesn't really look like World Trade Center because it's all dark. And it's, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And then you've got like, you couldn't bit snake... Um, comes down through the building, goes into that theatre, and they're all singing the New York song on the stage. You know, it's, yeah. you're in New York, guy. You know, it's a full-on yeah, plot. Yeah. But you really don't believe it until Ernest Borgnine's character really starts to involve himself in the plot. And, you know, he's, he's a cabbie in New York, and it, it really brings the authenticity to the world, to life, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the cab turns up and, and you think, oh, yeah, this, this, you know, this is a little bit more convincing now. And he's got the uniform and the, the, the iconic cap and everything on, you know, which plays a big part in the movie as, as it rolls out. But key to that, I think, is, OK, he's got all the accoutrements, but the key thing is he's got that New York attitude. And that sells it. 
the characters are New York characters, you know, and you see it with other, others as well. I think, uh, I mean, you know, even even uh, Susan Hubley's uh, little cameo when when she's uh, sort of discovered in in the, the uh, chock full of nuts, you know, and uh, um, and and then on to Isaac Hayes and his gang. These are people with that New York attitude. And what's interesting in terms of the film is the characters might not necessarily be from New York because it's being used as America's prison, so they could be people that have come from all over but I think one of one of the sort of subtle messages we're getting there is the the power of Manhattan Island to, to sort of turn you into a New Yorker you know and I've uh, um, I've experienced that on the times I've been you know uh, the first if when when you first go to New York you know you, you you're sort of a bit sort of put out at everyone's attitude and oh why is everyone snapping at me and why why is everyone behaving in this way you know and by the sort of middle of the week you're doing it yourself you know and you sort of get that sense here you know we're told that this this place is housing criminals from all over America but yeah they really really do convince you with that uh, that sort of Manhattan attitude. So just for those who haven't seen <laughs> or listening to this and haven't seen Escape from New York or need a refresher the plot's in, I was thinking in some ways this film like defies analysis, uh, even though we are about to have a podcast analysing it. <laughs> it kind of defies analysis because if you look too close into it, it's very, very basic. You've got the president's plane has crash landed in this maximum security prison island. Uh, he's been caught by the um, inhabitants there uh, who've made their own world free of guards and all that kind of stuff. And only one man is crazy enough or uh, blackmailed well enough to go in there to retrieve the president. Uh, and that's Snake Plissken. And then ahead of sort of like the Suicide Squad exploding um, collars that you you get him um, injected with. Yeah, so so he's he's got he's got the classic ticking clock idea going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a great movie plot. Here it's the here it's a sort of subplot or a sort of sideline. You know, that he's got to complete this mission within a certain length of time, otherwise his head explodes. You know, or whatever whatever happens. Yeah, as you say, Adam, set against that, we've got this world of this little microcosmic world where the prisoners are allowed to sort of roam free around Manhattan, but they're not allowed out, you know, and uh, um, and they've got the wall and armed guards and so on to stop them. But Carpenter, Carpenter has said quite often throughout his career, he's sort of said how much he loves uh, Westerns. And on occasion, he's made remarks like, Oh, all all my films are westerns, you know, and and this one definitely is, you know, this this is a plot that you could easily transplant into sort of Dodge City in in eighteen eighty, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it lives. It's, it's the the lone gunman, the 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 anti-hero, um, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood. It's uh, yeah, yeah, all those yeah. things. I mean, it's the point where you, the, the eye patch is even inspired by uh, Rooster Cogburn from True Grit. So you have those links to the westerns in in, in the roles. Yeah, the whole the whole look of this character is so cool. Now, what what about what about the guy we've not even mentioned his name yet? The guy who plays Snake, Mr. Kurt Russell. Yeah. Uh, How good is he? He's fantastic. I mean, in some ways, you could look at him and you could think, well, he's just doing a bit of a rip-off of Clint Eastwood in, in, the, in the Dollars trilogy. You know, he's, he's a grumpy man, doesn't say much, and when he does say something, it's very short and to the point, and, you know, and he's, you know, amoral, anti-hero-esque character. But I think for the time, 
he just nailed it and elevates it beyond beyond what Eastwood was doing with the Dollars trilogy, um, particularly particularly in New York, rather less so in LA, I think. But in New York, he definitely maintains that amoral and uh, almost like anarchi- anarchist style. Well, he he, hate, he believes in nothing and hates everything. <laughs> yeah, we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know he, he maintains that throughout the film from beginning to end, and yeah. and uh, um, and I I even think the I mean the, the 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 Clint Eastwood voice is is just an imitation, absolutely, and that has got to be something within the character, you know, that has got to be significant. That this guy is so cool and so confident that. He's elected to take on the persona of Clint Eastwood or a specific Clint Eastwood character, even. You know, it's not even Clint, it's 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 as you say, it's it's Clint from the Dollars trilogy. And you you get the sense that Snake Plissken has sort of adopted this as part of his chosen persona as a means of impressing people and of a, as a means of frightening or scaring or intimidating people um, along with the eye patch. And I we we never find out why he wears the eye patch, although I think it is it is explained in in the, the film novelization where they sort of expand on the story a bit. But in the films, it's never explained where he gets that from. And I, I even I've even got this sort of, you know, one one possible theory is that uh, he, he might even have two functioning eyes, but he just wears it because it looks cool and it looks intimidating. So um, there is this element to the character where um, the, the the whole look and the whole sort of attitude and everything seems so crafted to setting himself up as the sort of number one. He, well, he, I, I don't know what to call him here. He's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He's this loner. He's something in between that... Um, Goes in and gets these jobs done, but hates every minute of it and hates hates the people that are asking him to do it. You know, but what a character! And, and again, someone straight out of a western. Mm, yeah, or, or in some cases, a lot of those um, publishing boom of the nineteen seventies had a lot of these kind of characters. You know, usually they're ex-Vietnam vets who've lost all, all sort of like hope in the world. They're yeah. still doing jobs and missions as mercenaries. Uh, and they have they have no belief systems anymore. I think that was- exactly. You were even getting that in detective fiction and detective movies at the time. You know, I suppose again that might spring from from Harry Callahan, uh, another Clint Eastwood sure. character. But but yeah, there was this sort of air of cynicism in terms of, as you say, mercenaries, and it even touches on the more sort of troubled individuals like uh, like Travis Bickle, who's got nobody asking him to go on a mission, so he goes on one anyway. And uh, uh, he goes on one inside his own head, you know. And, yeah, that was very much a sort of characteristic of, of that type of American cinema, and particularly something that you, the younger breed of actor like like to play, you know, um, the sort of up-and-coming new stars of which Russell was one. Because, of course, his background's interesting because he, he started out started out as uh, a sort of Disney discovery, hadn't he? Yeah, that's right. I mean, because he was, he was, he's one of those ones where, like, how did he even get this role? It's obvious, like, Carpenter went to bat for him. He worked with him on the Elvis TV biopic. Yeah. But his background was was was... Disney, you know, it was like, he was doing Disney movies. He was like he was like the Justin Bieber or you know the <laughs> Justin Timberlake or something like that of the nineteen seventies, doing nice 
Disney live action movies to compete with our tennis shoes and things like that, you know. Yeah. So he wasn't the natural choice for this role. In fact, to the point where the, the studio forced them to actually look at other people, you know, and then think about other people. Uh, the three main ones that they talk about is like, like Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who would again go on to work with Carpenter tangentially, I guess, uh, in the 86 with Black Moon Rising, a uh, film scripted by Carpenter. And Chuck Norris was another one at that time. And Charles Bronson, who feels like a a misfire for me from the start, really. He's too old at that point, I think. Yeah. Again, I'll sort of emphasise the fact that I love that they didn't cast a, a known tough guy for this part because Snake has got this element of, of almost as though it's a game for him, you know, almost as though he's playing at it. And, um, and the, the Clint voice and the eye patch and everything we've already talked about. But I, I think the part sort of needs... There's this element, there's this undercurrent there that, oh, he's, he's pretending at this, you know, he's, he's bluffing his way through it in, in a way that was much more evident when he, when he played the character um, in um, Jack Burton, was it, in um, Big Trouble in Little China, where they go the whole hog there, where it is all a sort of subterfuge, it is a game, it is, it is a sort of gag that he, he knows he's winging it and pretending. Um, I think Snake has got more confidence in, in his own ability and, and he is capable of being a tough guy. He's setting himself up as like an icon, I guess, where yeah, you yeah, don't have... Because yeah. his character doesn't... His character, you don't believe he's a real person, even to the point where people, when people meet him, they say, like he's an actor, they say, oh, I thought you'd be taller. You know, because yeah. like, that's what people say to actors all the yeah, time, yeah, you know, yeah. and he is an actor in yeah. that. But and, when uh, you meet those characters like Cabby and Isaac Hayes' character in Season Hubbard, it's those characters that bring him to life in the world. Yeah. And, and they all they all know his name as well because because there's a there's there's a wonderful wonderful bit in the script and I, I want to ask you about the script in a little bit because I want to get your sort of perspective on this um, as as someone who sort of taught script writing and so on but uh, there's a brilliant brilliant line that uh, Lee Van Cleef has um, when he's sort of interviewing uh, Snake towards the start of the film. And he just puts in this throwaway line where he says, you flew the gullfire over Leningrad, didn't you? And the gullfire in the movie is, is the glider that um, he, he then uses to, to sort of sneak into to New York. So, yeah, you flew the gullfire over Leningrad, didn't you? And, and then you're on to another line and they're talking about something else. Now, I, I sort of was, was really taken by that line. I was very, very pleased to see... In, in sort of looking things up about the movie, that uh, William Gibson, the noted cyberpunk author, has also picked up on that line for many of the same reasons that I did. And Gibson said about it, I was intrigued by the exchange in one of the opening scenes. It turns out to be just a throwaway, but for a moment it worked like the best science fiction where a casual reference can imply a lot. So, yeah, the line, you flew the gullfire over Leningrad, didn't you? It's eight words, but is it telling us that there's been there's been a World War Three or America's been involved in some conflict with Russia and that Snake Plissken has been a big part of that and he's come home a war hero and maybe he's lost his eye there or maybe he's gained his attitude there and lost his respect for authority there. There's all that in, in eight little words there and William Gibson has picked up on that and it's played so well by Lee Van Cleef that he just delivers the line as, as, as we've said, 
and then it's it's just part of the whole sort of spiel, a whole sort of routine that he does. So it is literally a throwaway, but there's so much in there. There's so much backstory in there. And I think that's a great thing about these two movies. And um, the first one in particular, Escape from New York, in that we are given so little information, but we're given a lot of information in background and in the look of characters and in the settings and in characters' attitudes to each other. And uh, even the, 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 the big catchphrase that everybody uses about Snake in the movie in this one is, um, I heard you were dead. So they all know him. They all know his name. But they think he's dead, they, which, again, has all kinds of connotations there. Do they think he's died in the war or whatever? And also, there's this sense of respect about that as well, with a sort of sense of having a bit of a dig at him in, uh, as well. It's, all, it's brilliant. It's superbly sort of layered in, in very, very small touches. You know, we're given very, very little there. They're definitely creating a fabric of a world, aren't they, where, yeah, yeah. where they're, they're hinting at things that have happened beyond and you imp- are implying that Snake was involved in all of them. You know, it's like he's, he is the modern, uh, modern folk anti-hero, I guess, is the best way of looking at it. You know, he is the guy who, where they tell tales about him. He's yeah. a combination of the boogeyman and, and an American hero. He's, he's, he's both, you know. Yeah, so he really does come over as a sort of mythical figure and, and as a movie figure. You know, he's, 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 he is the central character in a movie rather than being a real person to, to an extent. I was going to ask you particularly about the early parts of this film when we first introduced the snake and the sort of economy of the entire school what what do you think of the way in which the information is conveyed to us here in such a sparse but informative way? Well, I think, that, again, we've talked about Warriors before, but this and the Warriors, they feel very much as like blueprints of how 80s cinema was going to develop. High concept idea, rush to the first act turning point, you know, you, you get him on the island, get him on the island, that is almost as quick as possible, you know, to the point where Carpenter even shot a whole sequence, backstory sequence, the start of Snake, robbing a bank, getting caught, you know, and, and that's how that's how they catch him. You know, they, they, you show all that and you just cut it out. It's like you, you, he's landing on the Trade Centre, I don't know, what, 15 minutes in? Yeah. Like yeah. that, he's in the world within 15 minutes. And that's very, very 80s in, in, in its sort of like high concept ideas. You know, things like, I guess, a lot of, of action films of the 1980s, like Commando. You don't yeah. around, you know, the, the daughter gets kidnapped, you're off, he jumps off the plane, he's got 18 hours to find his daughter. You know, it's like they, they don't mess around in those 80s movies. And this is definitely a, a template for that. Yeah, as I say, these are the first movies where where the lead character doesn't doesn't necessarily need to be a convincing human being. We don't, we don't need to know about their emotions and about their family background and about how they've got to where they are at the start of the film. They're just thrown in there, like you say, in a good way. You know, this is a, the, the word, word cipher is used in, in a sort of negative way, critically, I think, usually. But I, I think they, they, are, they are sort of ciphers. They are sort of representative figures rather than being sort of rounded human beings. And that's all we need. That's, that, that is all you need for this type of story. You just need the hero. It's, 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 it's the classic sort of hero template taken to extremes. 
it's like I was saying earlier, it's a, it kind of defies analysis. If you look at it too closely, it's like a, like a magic trick. If you look at it too closely, it starts to fall apart because there's not, there's not that much to the script. You know, it's fairly basic in, you know, in the sense that the dialogue hints a world beyond that, but we don't see that world beyond that. It, 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 the plot's fairly basic. You know, he's got to go into this island, get the president and get him off the island. You know, that's, that's again, fairly basic. And, you know, there's nothing much more to it. And the deeper you look into it, it's just like, yeah, he wanders around, meets one character, has a conversation with her. They either die or they move on, you know, meets another character. And it's very, very basic. I mean, in some ways, it's a bit, I mean, that was taken to its absolute extreme. I guess with Mad Max um, Fury Road <laughs> a yeah, few yeah. years ago, you know that style of storytelling where there's not a lot to it. It's just whipping you along at such a pace and absorbing you in the character in the world uh, in, in such a way that by the time you even start to think about the plot or the dialogue or anything like that, the movie's over. You're on your way home. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that movie, even to the point where you know the the, the title character is tied to to the the front of a moving vehicle for most of the time, and and doesn't actually do all that much, you know. But as as long as he's present, as long as he's there, you know that that's all that matters, and and um, that that is absolutely a, a reduction of that idea. Um, the fact that he's he's literally a hood ornament in this one, you know. Yes, yeah, snake snakes. A, a great example of that and as you say I, I think I think um, Escape from New York is one of those films that really defined the 80s and Carpenter had made films in the late 70s and he was starting to make a name for himself he could have easily just carried on making films like that but I think I think he's one of the directors who really reacted to the fact that we were in a new decade and thought, right, we, we need we need a new breed and a new brand of cinema here. And um, he was instrumental as much as anyone in sort of creating that. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where it's like, people often say, oh, I love Escape from New York. Why didn't they make a series of movies starring, starring Snake Plissken? And it's like, well, they'd all be the same. Yeah. You know, there's not, yeah. there's not much more to that character and that story. The story's told brilliantly. Well, obviously, now we live in a world where it's franchise focused and, 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 and something like Snake. I don't think you could have a three film story arc with Snake Plissken. You'd change his character too much. Yeah. Well, look at what happened with Mad Max around the same time. The, the first Mad Max movie is so pared down and very much its own thing. And, and they, they did get an 80s trilogy out of that eventually. You know, first movies, late 70s, and then they do Road Warrior in 81. Uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and the only way that they could cope with that was to make the films bigger and bigger and, and expand that world and I think that's the only possible way that you could have sort of followed up instantly you know we, we got the later follow-up that we're going to be talking about but I think the only way you could have done a sort of instant follow-ups to Escape from New York would have been to follow that Mad Max template and I think um it might have dissipated the character a little bit, um, you know, because Snake needs that, that sort of, he needs to be in that very lean, very stripped down sort of world and might not necessarily work as a bigger character. Again, they, they did it with the Rambo movies as well. First Blood, again, is a completely stripped down, very basic uh, sort of survivalist movie. And then they took that character and put him into much bigger stories played out on much bigger canvases and i just don't think that would have worked for snake no i mean they did talk about the third a possible third film 
uh, being uh, escape from space or escape to space. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure where we put, put Snake Plissken into space. But then Luke Besson did it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. To which John Carpenter did sue. <laughs> and rightfully so. I mean, lockout yeah, yeah. was just literally a complete... <laughs> but yeah, one thing we haven't talked about and which we, we probably should talk about because um, most of John Carpenter's films, this is a key point and it's the music. The yeah. score for this film... Again, similar to, to his previous scores, but it, this one more so than Halloween, I think more so than, than his other work. This one really said 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna score this as if you are watching a film of the future. And 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 it elevates the movie. I mean, to the point where people have heard the soundtrack and never seen the film. Sure, sure. And um, I mean, pe- people may not know, um, I'm sure fans know this, but to general listeners may not know that Carpenter actually unusually was was very, very heavily involved in the music for his films. And, uh, um, and he, he, he sort of scored this one himself, along with uh, Alan Howarth, who was a sort of regular collaborator. And um, uh, there, are, there are Carpenter fans who love his scores. And of course, he's been touring them recently. He's been over in the UK even, uh, sort of playing live, live concerts. It's yeah, sort of I what he does him. now. Is, <laughs> yeah, and uh, he sort of makes albums and uh, plays, uh, plays gigs now. I think Car- Carpenter fans love his scores. And I think that the real favoured ones are... Um, Assault on Precinct 13 and Christine, I think, are the ones that everybody talks about as being his best. I'm, I'm going for this. I'm going for Escape from New York. Yeah, the other ones, the other ones are great, and they're, they're more expansive. Yeah. This one's very bare, and there's not, there's almost barely an album's worth of, uh, of tracks on this. But that yeah. central refrain, that central uh, theme to the movie, it just screams dystopian. 80s you know future all those things just immediately leap to mind when you hear those first few chords you know immediately oh here we go here we go what's this about you know yeah and and i'd also say that the the remainder of the score is a it's bare and sparse for a reason because it absolutely fits the film and as as a listener I, i would also add you know what some of us like listening to bear and sparse music so uh, i'm i'm quite happy with the soundtrack album for escape in new york I, I think it's great but yeah that opening theme which is more more sort of traditional and more typical even then i use those words traditional and typical at the time it was groundbreaking you know it was it's only looking back on it now that you 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 describe it in those terms at that time as you've already said adam it was one of the one of the sort of key things in movies of, of that early part of the decade that brashly announced this is how things are going to be from now on. Yeah, yeah, and particularly in American cinema. Obviously, you had yeah. you'd had since uh, all, all <laughs> dominating Italian cinema for the last thirteen yeah. years or so. But, uh, <laughs> definitely in American cinema. Yeah. Started- and, and Carp- Carpenter would have seen all those films as well. So uh, interestingly there, he's taking influence from that. And then Italian filmmakers are coming along and uh, absolutely ripping off, you know, this film in particular and little bits of some of his other movies. But it all sort of rolls around, I guess. You know, everyone's influencing everyone else. But uh, um, I suppose we, we need to talk as well about up to our our sort of lo- near local boy, you know, Nottinghamshire lad, uh, Donald Pleasant, who uh, 
had, had worked for Carpenter in Halloween, of course, as uh, Dr. Loomis, iconic character in, in the Halloween series that ensued. But um, what do we think of him here playing the, the, the American president with an American accent? I, I can I can hear I can hear John phoning him up saying, "Yeah, Don Donald, I've got I've got a good role for you. It's the president of the United States. So basically, going to bring you in for a day. Can you do an American accent? Okay, great. Um, but what we're going to do is then we're going to beat the crap out of you and put a blonde wig on you and tie you up for the rest of the movie. Fancy it?" <laughs> to, to which Donald Pleasant said, "It's a payday. It's a trip to America. Why not? You know? Yeah, yeah." So and and I I, th I think he nails it. There's there's an element within the way Pleasance plays the president that's similar to what we were saying about Snake earlier on. That it's it's almost like an act. It's almost a pretend, you know. And I think the fact that whether he gets away with his American accent or not, I don't know. But if he doesn't, if you're on the side that says no, it it, it just tips over a little bit too much. I think that's all part of the character again. I think that's John Carpenter sort of saying, "Look, the American president's always fake." Yeah, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think he's got enough lines generally for for you to sit there and think terrible accent. You know what I mean? It's like no, no. he has those sequences at the start where he's uh, official, working through the problems, getting me to the pod, you know, and he gets in the pod, and, and then for me, the, the standout scene is with the Duke firing the gun at him on, when he's changed the wall. Yeah, and he's forced to say, you know, you're the Duke of New York, you're a number one. You know, it's like the way that he delivers that line with where it's like terror, fear, yeah, oh, it's ab ab abject panic, yeah, yeah. But, but also, but also like a backbone of like of, of anger as well. I'm the goddamn yes. president, yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah. In, in intermingle with that, there, it's, it's brilliant with what he does. He, he's not got a lot to do, but he he does it brilliantly to the point where the end when he when he when he um, has his little end of his little storyline you buy it you buy it and you think yeah okay he's gone through hell and then that's that's the suitable climax to that story and he's in what that's three scenes yeah 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 <laughs> ultimately to, to set that story up you know he's, he's on the plane he's on the ground he's 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 back at the end you know so it's you know it's, it's brilliant work from pleasant in a very head back role yeah, I, I I love it, and and as I say, I think if if you if you want to look for them, there are little layers and nuances in there that that it's almost Carpenter saying, well, if you think this president's faking it, don't they all? What wasn't Richard Nixon faking? You know, mm. um, isn't Reagan faking? Three, you know, two months into his his, his run or whatever. But um, I mean, speaking of speaking of things presidential, and we've already talked about the the eight word line that William Gibson singled out uh, for attention. I think the, the iconic line from, uh, from Escape from New York is um, Snake's very, very simple and, and delivered under his breath, the president of what? <laughs> which, which, I don't know about you, Adam, but I'm, I'm still quoting that 40 years on, you know, in all kinds of circumstances. What what a great economic line that is! Yeah, no. It, it, again, the script is really, really pared down, works to within an inch of its life in many ways, particularly with Snake's lines and indeed the present's lines. But there's there's a lot of great character actors in this film that don't have a lot to do, don't are not given much to do really. They are a little step on the journey for Snake. So you got Harry Dean Stanton with brains, you know. Um, yeah. You've got Adrian Bradbow in it as well. You know, you've got like 
you've got all these great people. You don't do much with them, really. sort of, um, Yeah, there's sort of two levels to that, really, because um, Carpenter's at the point where he's sort of on the cusp of becoming really big, and this is his first film where you do get the sense this is the first time where he's got the chance to do fantasy casting, you know, and, and he's sort of gone along and, with his list and said, can, can we have it? I've always wanted to work with Lee Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine and Isaac Hayes, please, you know. So they're all in the film. And then you've got Adrian Barbo, who's his wife, but also uh, at, the, at the time they were married and uh, and also um, had appeared in, in his films previously. And then Harry Dean Stanton and... Um, uh, as we've already said, people like Frank Doubleday, who I think comes on and, and um, just steals every scene that he's in. He's, he's playing a character called Romero, named after George Romero. I think there's, there's also a character called Cronenberg in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. And uh, So it's that sort of arch thing that everybody was sort of doing that at the time. You know, these, these, these young kids who suddenly got a chance to direct movies, age sort of 28 or whatever, were, were all you know, referencing each other and referencing all their favourites. But Frank Doubleday as Romero, I, I think what a performance that is. He's 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 sort of Duke's not not second in command, but he's sort of his his eyes on the street sort of thing, isn't he? And um it's it's almost like a mind performance. Again, he he gets a few lines of dialogue in the way that Snake does and in the way that the president does, but um he but it's not about his dialogue. It's all about his movements and the movement of his arms and legs, the way that he sort of uses his limbs um, in particular ways, the way that he sort of sneers and shows off those sort of needle-like teeth that he's got, that incredible hairdo that he's got. And, yeah, I, I just think a, almost a brilliant, almost sort of ballet-like performance there, all great use of his sort of live wiry sort of frame I think just sort of snaking into the frame and peering round corners and stuff or suddenly holding himself very still and holding his arm up in a particular way or something it's, it's a brilliant physical performance and then when he has to speak um this this almost sort of hissing sibilant like um and, and full of attitude full of I own the place sort of attitude there and a, a clear sort of disdain for every other character in the movie he's almost yeah. he's almost the anti-snake pliskin you know yeah yeah they're not that far removed in some ways you know they, yeah yeah from the very start when when they land and he says like you know you know you touch me he dies you know and his lines are, are almost like reflective of the way he uses his body as well yeah they're very short they're very sharp they're very you know pointed um, um dialogue which goes along with his character, I think. Yeah, and he, he often ends them with a great, a brilliant trademark, a great sort of squawking uh, burst of laughter as well, which I, I think is uh, a, a, another great sort of level to the character. That there's the, he's, he's this film's the Joker, really. You know, he's, he's, he's that sort of character. Yeah, he's the he's the, the the symbiosis of anarchy and chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This world, and and, and again, such so, such so you're you're seeing characters like that now. Well, in in the, the the way that the Joker has been revived in 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 the Batman films over the past thirty years, but you'll also get characters like that in in uh, the Purge movies and things like that as well. It's it's almost like if you're making a dystopian movie, it's got to have this sort of manic wild-haired, screeching um, character with, with bad teeth in it, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from uh, Romero and Frank Doubleday in this movie. 
let's jump across the coast, coast to coast, to okay. Escape from LA. So, like, 15 years later, they reteamed for Escape from LA. Uh, at this point, Kurt Russell's a big star, more of a star than he was in this first movie. He's gone through um, Tequila Sunrise and Tango and Cash and uh, a bunch of comedy movies in the 80s, Overboard, and things like that. And this was... I guess he was maybe looking for a hit around this period. He had a couple of films that weren't quite as big a hits as he wanted yeah, them to be. Yeah. Um, and Car- Carpenter's sort of in that position as well. He He's really made his name throughout the 80s, you know, become a big-name director, has never really sort of broken out of sort of horror or science fiction, uh, particularly. You know, I suppose his, his, his biggest sort of lurch was... was um, uh, teaming up with uh, Chevy Chase to do Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And even that's a science fiction movie, you know, uh, to a point. So, um, uh, but he's become a big name within sort of cult movie circles. And again, we suddenly hit the 90s and his films aren't as critically or commercially successful as they once were. So are we in a position here where Kurt Russell needs to hit, John Carpenter needs to hit, and they both put two and two together. It certainly feels that way, I must admit. <laughs> um, watching it again last night, because I, 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 I saw this on release in the cinema, and I remember enjoying it. I think it was a good film, you know, and then watching it again, and it is so... The first film has got so much imagination, so much forward thinking with the score, with the performances, the influences that it has on 80s cinema. And then you watch this one and it's all of that's gone. There's none of the yeah, yeah. forward looking imagination, the the verve, the the things that you think, oh, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. It's basically a redo in LA. Yeah, yeah. And and one one thing it does as well is it, it's it's got um, it, it uh, again, you've got this wave of fairly big name guest stars who coming on and guest starring basically. They're not major characters. And and a lot of those roles are ones that's rather than look being futuristic, you know, hark back to the past and hark back to the movies past. You know, we've got Peter Fonda playing, guess what, a, a hippie surfer, a sort of aging hippie surfer. Um, we've got Bruce Campbell effectively playing a mad scientist, you know, sort of 1940s style mad scientist in a great scene. I, I think they're both really good in the film in what they do, but uh, and they make an impact. But you know, what what's this got to do with the world of the escape film? Um, what's this got to do with the world, the futuristic world of 2013? You know, it's 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 yeah, it's very much sort of retro movie. Um, so when when it's not stealing from Escape from New York, which it does a lot. Um, it's it's stealing from things that go even further back. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just a redo, but in LA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. in, in the same way as that New York, I mean, Snake Plissken doesn't change the character. In this one, he's a little bit less uh, nihilistic, I, yeah, I would argue. Yeah. He shows some sort of human emotion. <laughs> it's all, it's yeah, almost like, as a, he's, he's, he's now a nihilist with a sense of humour, I think. He's, yeah, he's, he, he, now, he now knows he's a nihilist and sort of uses that to, to his advantage, you know. Um, uh, whereas, whereas I think the snake of the first movie was just, I, I don't give a shit, you know. Yeah, and I think with the first movie, they were obviously it's, it's Escape from New York, the name's in the title, and they are making that gritty world, that realistic world, um, all of which doesn't apply to LA. LA is without 
without a massive uh, earthquake <laughs> and it being disposed of and put out outside of American territory, it's still a ridiculous world, LA, yeah. normally. So they're obviously playing on that and putting, putting Snake into a very ridiculous, hyper-real world, which I don't, I don't think it works. No, you never get any sense of conflict there. If, 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 if you're going to do that, have your character sort of reacting to that world in, in a way that Clint Eastwood's characters often did. You know, that's the thing I think they miss here. Rather than reacting against that world and pointing up the satire of it, I think Snake sort of um, almost subsumes himself into that world and, and, um, and, and becomes, just becomes another part of it by the end. Um, and yeah, it's it's a missed opportunity there. I think you could have really done a, a, a sort of conflicting thing there, and they they've sort of you've you've got the setup and you've got the character to do that, and I think they they sort of uh, they sort of missed the opportunity. Yeah, well, like like we said previously, he is his own movie character. He is that icon, that folk hero, that folk antihero, and then putting that movie actor into a world where everyone's a movie actor. You know, yeah, you know yeah. all the characters that we meet and are caricatures, characters that you would see in movies and probably not in real life. You know, even like, I'm trying to think of any of the real characters. I guess, you know, the, the Valerie Galino character is the closest we get to a, a, a real person. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. the president's daughter, maybe. Yeah. Even, even they're sort of larger than, you can even imagine them in, in a sort of Purge movie or a Mad Max ripoff. So, uh, yeah, um, if, if they're your normal characters, you know, the, the film's in... in has gone a little bit too cartoony and a bit too far, I think. Um, and just in case you weren't sure it's going too cartoony, we have Snake surfing, um, uh, a surfing chasing, which is on a level with the monkeys in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom and the Crystal Skull. It's on a level with yeah, you, I think. Yeah. Now, there are, there are so many jumping the shark moments in this movie that there's actually one that is a jumping shark. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, this but yeah, the, the tsunami, the tsunami bit, and then the hang gliding at the end. I think, oh, you 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 know, you're just rolling your eyes at these scenes. So there's a, there's a lot to enjoy in Escape from LA, but ev every 15 minutes you do get um, a, a sort of eye rolling moment where you think you you just think to yourself, Snake wouldn't do that. No, yeah, no, definitely, that is definitely that, and and again, showing human emotions in this movie it's like well what's going on that's not the snake we know and love yeah i mean what the scene for me that sort of keys the difference between the films as, as you say it's in the great point you made there about the very titles of the films adam um and you know pitting new york versus la says such a lot there and i think the the, the film itself often tries to copy or riff on moments from escape from new york we've got another president in there for example you know but i think i think the scene that exemplifies that is um they try and do um an equivalent of the the great uh, gladiatorial arena scene in escape from new york that's set in this sort of rundown basement somewhere where they they've set up this sort of wrestling ring and um 
Well, who's the, the wrestler? Ox Baker, Ox is Baker, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, the great hulking wrestler. And he fights Kurt Russell with spike baseball bats in this ring with everyone around cheering on. It's a fantastic scene in Escape from New York. And the equivalent to that in Escape from L.A. is this sort of solo basketball challenge. And it, it just, it's obviously there as a means of trying to sort of recapture that same sort of, let's, let's put Snake in a situation that he can't possibly get out of sort of thing, where he's clearly going to die. And, and his, his ticking wristwatch shows that he's got two hours left to go anyway, but he's, he's going to die here, you know. And he's basically, rather than fighting this sort of man-mountain armed, armed with a, a spike baseball bat, he's playing basketball against himself. And um, it, it, it's just not got anywhere near the same sense of peril and, and, and endangerment there. And, and you sort of know he's going to get out of it. You know, it's, it's set against the clock sort of thing. He's got to score, score so many baskets within a certain length of time. But you, you know how it's going to end up and you know he's going to get out of there. Whereas in, in the first movie, Ox gets into the ring and you, you think, He's, he's got no chance, you know, what's going to happen now? Yeah, end, end of movie sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really trying to pull what, what, what does L.A. mean to people and then putting Snake in situations that reflect that, you know. So you have, the, I guess the basketball is the Lakers. I guess they were popular at the time. I don't know enough about basketball to know that, but it feels like having that kind of, like, setting yeah. was, was their thought. But really, they should have been thinking, like, well, they have those sort of like car chases down um, the the Thunder Road sort of thing, you know, in um, yeah. Greece and in Terminator, and just do that, do that. Yeah, that's that's sure. that's what LA people don't think that think of that as LA as well. And that's much more exciting. You have a car chase bit in in this film. What what they do is they set up LA as being this this sort of hotbed of vice and 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 sin and everything, and it's actually physically detached from America because of earthquake activity, and they built a wall around it. So it's the same it's the same sort of central idea, very similar sort of central idea to Escape from New York. Now, interestingly, what we're told is the rest of America has now become this uh, sort of anodyne, sort of very religious supposedly moral evangelical sort of place with this this sort of president who's trying to sort of pitch extreme family values across across the country across the 50 states you know do you know what i'd i'd almost prefer to have seen snake plissken in in that setting rather than in in los angeles um, I, I think that might have made for a more is- interesting conflict and a better film. Let's have Snake taking on the religious right. Mm. Well, he but he's comfortable in that world, <laughs> bizarrely, in the worlds that they're yeah, building yeah. him in. He's comfortable yeah. in those worlds. Yeah. There's no threat to him, really. I mean, even people are getting shot, he doesn't care, he moves on. You know, it's like he, he's comfortable in those kind of worlds. Putting him in a world where he's not comfortable would be... Yeah. And, and or interesting and, uh, whether whether you could do that because these characters so monosyllabic and uh, and defined. I yeah, think it'd be a yeah. difficult. It'd be more like um, First Blood. Yeah. I guess when you know when Stallone rolls into town, First Blood. And, yeah. Well, again, you're talking about a much more stripped down sort of thing. So so basically, what we want is is a film that's that's 
much more like in the with the tone of Escape from New York rather than this this sort of cartoon circus sort of thing. But but it's but it's got good moments and um you know we we said Frank Doubleday sort of stole the show in in Escape from New York. I think they they try and do the same with the Steve Buscemi here and it doesn't quite come off. Um, he's playing a character who sort of flits in and out very much in the way that Doubleday did. For me, he's the cabbie character in this one. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's moving Snake along the plot. Yeah, I think he's a mixture of the two because you, he's, he's with with Cabby, you sort of always knew that he was on Snake's side. You know, I think with with uh, Bushimi's character here, you're never quite sure whether he's going to do good or bad for Snake. You know, whether he's whether he's lying to him or not. And Bushimi at this time was was very much he's he's become almost a sort of forgotten figure now to an extent but at that time he he was he was just about the hottest ticket in hollywood for this type of supporting role if you'd got a part in your film for the guy who was going to be sort of third on the poster he was the first person that most producers went to at that time. Uh, he, he was still trading off his success in uh, Tarantino's films, and in particular Reservoir Dogs. And this is 96. This is four or five years after that. And Steve Buscemi was still the guy that you had to get in your film at that point. And yeah. um, there, I, th I think there's a, a sense of give or take in this because um, Carpenter clearly wanted him in his film. I think Bushimi probably said yes to this because it was a John Carpenter movie, whereas other people pitching this, if, if Joe Blow had gone in and said, oh, we're making this film about about uh, this guy who, who comes to this sort of imprisoned and walled version of LA, he'd have said, I'm not interested. You know, it sounds daft. But if John Carpenter comes and says it, it you'd think, I want to work with John Carpenter. So yeah, yeah, there's a bit of give and take there, I think. But Bushimi's good, but he he reminded me a lot in this film of because he, he he does tend to mug a little bit in it, and he he reminded me he's he's almost like an American equivalent of our own uh, Adrian Edmondson, I think, in this <laughs> movie. There's a little bit too much sort of smirking at the camera and sort of laughing at himself and and being pleased with 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 his own performance sort of thing which I suppose fits the world of this film. But it, again, it, it sort of doesn't quite fit the world of Snake Plissken. Yeah, I, th I think everybody in this film, other than Snake, is mugging, even Snake's mugging to the camera. Yeah, bit, yeah, you know, yeah. In this, and it's, it's definitely over the top. The plastic surgeon's over the top plastic surgeon, you know. The um, the uh, Pam Greer later on in the movie as the, as the transgender carjack from his past. Is yeah. it, 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 that's an over the top depiction that you wouldn't get away with nowadays, you know? No, no, um, no and really, you shouldn't have got away with it then. It was it was a cheap, cheap gag, you know, a cheap, cheap scene. Yeah, it's, it's it is very weird, very sort of uncomfortable uh, viewing, and you see, you see, you you do sort of think as you're watching it, you know, what? I mean, Pam Greer's obviously had had a whole career where she 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 will have faced all kinds of sort of abuse and all kinds of weird. Um, uh, sort of suggestions and offers from producers and things, you know, and and but you you do you do see her in this part, and you, and you think, what was she thinking? You know, what? How was this pitched to her, and, and why did she say yes? You know, but uh, a, a job's a job, I guess. You know, but, yes, yeah, uh, exactly. And 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 again, you know, Car Carpenter's a guy that a lot of these people would would have sort of been fans of and and the chance to work with him was obviously one that, that they they'd sort of say oh yeah I'll I'll do that whatever the part you know and uh, 
Um, maybe that's maybe that's part of it. The the music in the film as well, I, I think, is a big letdown. It's um, um, interesting story on this because uh, um, Carpenter's theme is used again. There's a good a good sort of remix or redo of. of the, the classic main theme at the start. But then the, the score itself is largely taken over by uh, Shirley Walker, who was uh, well known as being a real sort of breakthrough artist, uh, one of the very, very first women to actually get into a position where she was she was writing solo scores for movies from, from the sort of mid-70s onwards. And um, this, for me, isn't among her best work and doesn't fit the film, I don't think. No, no, I, I agree. I'm not quite sure what would fit the film, but um, <laughs> this one doesn't. <laughs> um, it, it's it, because the film's such an over-the-top caricature. I guess you know it's just ridiculous. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wonder what, was was Carpenter in a position at this stage where he wasn't actually able to insist on doing the music himself, or did he did he not want to for this one? You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why they made these choices on on the soundtrack. Yeah, no, it's unusual considering the soundtrack is a big part of the original. I think, I think even even all this said, I mean, as much as I love, I love Escape from New York, and I, and and I'm not as fond of Escape from LA. I do still enjoy Escape from LA. It's, it's, oh, it's it's, it's 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 a it's a fun ride. Yeah, 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 but it does expose the sort of like the basic storytelling more in this one than in the first one. But I think the other the other the other thing I want to bring because I'm a big big I'm a provider, I'm a big John Carpenter fan. And he's a brilliant director. I'm not sure actions is 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 genre though. I don't think he directs action. I think he directs action okay, but I don't think he elevates the action scenes in either movie really. No, which is which is probably why he's steered clear from them in the past, you know. And the the the, the only other film that he'd made on this sort of scale and with this sort of scope was Big Trouble in Little China, I think. And and again, that's that's a film that's got its problems. It's it's much better than Escape from L.A., but it's it's uh, again he's 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 good with the characters in that, but um, the the big action set pieces he sort of gets away with them a little bit more in Big Trouble in Little China because a lot of that movie is played for laughs and so he kind of plays the action scenes as as over the top as as, as well and uh, i think they they work a lot better than the, than the action here as, as i say um there are a lot of moments in the film that are what you'd call sort of jumping the shark moments and i think you can include all of the action scenes in that they all they all seem completely out of place they, they don't convince you as things that snake plissken would get involved in and they're they're not, they're not even really all that memorable. No, no. I literally watched it last night, and I'm struggling to remember them now. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, a lot of them are just short bursts of violence, and then that's it. You know, there's yeah, not real, yeah. there's not real verve or in, ingenuity about the way that they they are choreographed. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that whole big hand gliding set piece at the end just just sort of goes nowhere, and and. Um, just had me sort of thinking in the way that it is shot and staged visually it reminded me of the the hawkman sequence from flash gordon and i just i just thought that sort of came to my mind and i thought well that that did this sort of thing right and this isn't doing it with the same sort of impact i think i think one of the big things as well is like there's not there's not a really strong villain in this i don't think i think the the um the villain in the duke in new york he's threatening he's dangerous he owns that land he's a number one you know whereas you don't get that feel with 
Oh, I've forgotten his name now. What's he um, called? The Cuervo. Cuervo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Cuervo. You don't, yeah. you don't get the same vibe from him. The, uh, you don't feel like there's the same threat from him. No, no. Well, he's, he's not got much physicality about him, for one thing. And uh, um, uh, the, he's, he seems to rely a lot more on, on his entourage, where, whereas the, the Duke is very clearly the guy calling the shots, you know, and, uh, and he, he barks out an order and everybody, the whole, the whole island of Manhattan responds to it. And there's no sense of that here, you know. It's, it's a more sort of uh, enclosed, um, close-knit sort of group around him. And uh, and yeah, there's 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 not the sense of authority, is there? There's not the sense of threat because of that. No, and I don't think I don't think the the Che Guevara cipher thing works a bit. No, no, at no. all. You kind of feel like we're well, going to set it in LA. Let's let's have a real LA bad guy. Wouldn't you have like a the head of head of Walt Disney or something like that as your main villain, or you know, you, something like that? You know. Well, that that's why I say, you know, if, if if you're pitching this world where LA is separated from America and America has now become this sort of evangelist paradise, and the sort of moral moral majority nightmare sort of thing, I'd rather see Snake Plissken versus Jimmy Swaggart or something. You know, it's uh, let, let's put him right in the middle of Bible Belt America rather than in in this 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 carnival you know um and and uh, yeah the, the 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 film just just it it seems too broad and too and too comic you know I mean we we we, we sound like we're we're really really having a go at it I, I think it's a film where we 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 love Snake and we love Carpenter and we love the whole sort of world of Escape from New York so much that we we want any spin-offs or sequels or anything that's attached to that world to be good, you know. And and Escape from LA is is great fun, it's very watchable, but it's disappointing in the sense that it's not what it could have been. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd agree with that. They've continued to try and remake this movie. <laughs> on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, apparently, Neil Cross did the most recent uh, screenplay that's been knocking around Hollywood. I, I think they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle to remake this film. Because like well, who, I said... like Who, who any, do you find to play Snake Plissken? Well, that's one of the problems. Who, who replaces Kurt Russell? And also, but like, what's the script going to be? Because you can't, you probably can't get away with the sparseness of the script of of New York and LA nowadays, you just can't. No, I'm, I'm sure they'll if 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 they do inevitably get round to doing another film using the character, it it'll go big. It'll it'll be oh, what yeah. we were talking about earlier. If if this character doesn't fit into the LA that we see in Escape from LA, he's not going to think he's not going to fit into anything bigger than that. It'll be and that's what we're going to be offered. Yeah, it'll be Snake Fiskin rescuing the president's daughter who's seven. Yeah, and it's them him having to take a seven-year-old. Through a battered landscape, and uh, you know, suffer crying and that kind of, you know, pull funny faces to make a laugh, you know, that kind of stuff. That'll be it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Start starring Tom Hardy in a wig. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, not Tom Hardy seems to be the go-to guy for these guys. He replaced uh, Mel Gibson with. Yeah, I and I like him a lot, but he's no Snake Plissken. No, he's not. I mean, yeah, I don't know who you'd replace. I really don't know. I mean, well, they, 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 as as we often say when we're talking about older movies, whether whether we're going back to the thirties and forties or even going back to to the early eighties now, there, there's a breed of actor that they don't they don't make anymore. 
Cool. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, okay, Adam. An enjoyable uh, diversion into the past future. I'm sure we'll come back to John Carpenter in the future at some point. Uh, I want to thank Quad and the BFI for supporting these podcasts. And uh, yeah, we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Bye.